0: Mick Wall and Joel McIver present Dead Rock Stars.
1: If you want to hear more about Denzel the Dragon, Hard and Heavy, the world's first video magazine, and the afternoon Ronnie James Dio first revealed the devil's horns, then please stay right here for Dead Rock Stars, the podcast that refreshes. The Parts' other podcast cannot reach when it comes to heavy rock Do you music.
2: actually write this stuff before we begin? I've been awake all night trying the, to think of it. The, the show that refreshes The Other part. Well, this places us in
1: about 1985 on the Steve Wright that's, show. That's where I'm happiest, Mick. <laughs> uh, and what I was going to go on to say was that uh, my name is Joel McIver. Let's talk about me for a bit. And uh, it's relevant to today's podcast because the number of fucking people that come up to me and sing... Holy Diver, at me because it rhymes with Joel McIver, is high and significant. I never knew that. Bastard! I've never seen anyone do that. No, they do it, believe me. They write it at me in emails and Facebook. Holy Diver. Yeah, because it sounds a bit like my name, right? They don't do it because you look like Jack Black. Well, uh, one day I hope to look like Jack Black. Anyway, look, so my name is Joel McIver, as I've just said. I'm the author of many books on uh, various kinds of music. Um, But my achievements are eclipsed many times by my colleague sitting next to me now, my comrade in arms. The man who not only puts the wall in oh, Adrian's no, wall, oh, God. he puts the Mick in mixuration. I, I put the <laughs> I put the sausage in your ice cream. No, that that I did work on the Mick yeah. in mixuration. How are you today, Mick? You yeah, I don't even know what that means. I was hoping. I, I was really...
2: feeling good till you came out with that. You know,
1: it's a great compliment. Is it? Yeah, I, I was hoping you wouldn't know what more was. I have no the, idea the what people, that means. Is people, it something
2: to do with, you know, onanism? It's not unrelated, but uh, it's, it's a good thing. Okay. You know, it's something
1: that we all do on a regular basis.
2: <laughs> you speak for yourself, big boy.
1: <laughs> now listen, this is episode two of Dead Rockstars, in which Mick and I talk about and celebrate the lives of great musicians no longer with us, or less great, as the case may be. Our first episode, which we're trusting that you all heard and enjoyed, was on the great Lemmy. Sadly, no longer with us for the two and a half years and so on. And today we move on to a rock star of, I would think, equal stature. Would you say, Mick, in terms Uh, of his cultural impact, in terms of the music we love him for? Globally more so, yeah. I mean, I think the cult of Lemmy is narrower.
2: For instance, we don't talk of the mighty Lemmy, but we do talk of the mighty Dio. Mighty Lund. I think that's a, a distinction worth making.
1: Absolutely it is. So, yes, as Mick has said, today we're talking about the great Ronnie James Dio, it was often Ronnie died in twenty ten, in his late sixties, possibly a decade before his time. Or if you actually yeah. get his real birth certificate, possibly two decades. Right now, there was some <laughs> control- there was some there was always a lack of understanding about that, wasn't there? He was either born in forty nine or forty two or forty seven or you know, some of these far off dates that were never quite well, clarified. Let me put it this way.
2: I don't imagine for one second Ronnie changed his date of birth to seem older. Uh, no. No. He was a senior citizen among us, was he not? Always <laughs>
1: He was the senior well, one, of, one of
2: us. Well, I tell you what, I do think he'd lived many lifetimes. I mean, not just in bands, which he had, but when I first met him in Black Sabbath, I was their PR in those days. Yeah, And uh, he already seemed to me, I honestly mean this in a very kind of admirable way. Admiring? He seemed already to me about 100 years old. I mean, he really was kind of Tolkien-esque. Sort of in wisdom, kind of. In wisdom... Also, just in a shell, in terms of many layers of the onion, you know, many, I, many lifetimes, I, I, because he's one of the toughest guys I ever worked for. And yet at the same time, clearly very poetic, romantic, you know, remarkably yeah. romantic, but at the same time, you know, you've got this hard-boiled New Yorker. Yeah. But as I
1: say, quite mystical too. See, this is brilliant. This is exactly what I wanted to kick off with. The reason why I think people listen to our podcast is because we knew these people, right? And they want to know what these people were really like. Yeah. So what you've said instantly makes it very clear that this was no ordinary man, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he death had layers of, I don't know, being, right? Are we saying that? Well, when I first met Black Sabbath, Ozzy had been sacked and
2: Ronnie had been brought in and they'd recorded the Heaven and Hell album in America, but they were now mixing it in Paris with Martin Birch, who then went on to Iron Maiden and so forth. And um, I was a young 21-year-old PR. Lothario. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Did you have a mullet at this point? I think it's important in every episode to (laughs) ascertain the status of your mullet. Well, this is late 79, 1980, so less of a mullet and more of a, you know, uh, hair means something, man. (laughs) You know, don't mess with my hair. Do not touch my brush. That's it. That's it. Don't even come near My Do. My do. Don't mess with my do. Okay. Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. I
1: needed to make that clear. Yeah. So you walked into the studio where they were mixing. Yes. And I met three
2: grizzled veterans, Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, and Bill Ward. Bill Ward, who was, as I'm sure he'd have no problem admitting to now was a complete mess. He has done many times I have a lovely story about him that we may or may not tell which Mm. involves nudity but Ronnie was different. The other three I kind of got straight away you know they'd had their big days Ozzy had left this was a very kind of crucial moment for them but they felt very confident very confident. Ronnie... I didn't know what planet he was from at all. Yeah. He kind of beamed into the room and immediately the atmosphere changed. He was full on. I mean, he could be an incredibly nice, generous, warm, giving guy, very welcoming, hospitable, but he was as hard as a rock. He wanted things to go to plan, I think, at that particular moment because he was filling Aussie's boots, yeah. as it were. Yeah. And in those days, we have to remember, this was a big deal. It's not like now where, you know, Paul Rogers can sing with Queen yeah. and...
1: Journey can pull in
2: some unknown singer and all that. Right. Lou Reed can work with Metallica or whoever it might be, you know, different versions of Bad Company and Foreigner. Back then, authenticity was the key. And Mm, um, mm, I think mm. Ronnie was extremely aware that he had a big task ahead of him. But I got the feeling it went beyond that. I felt as if he'd spent his life Mm. trying to validate who he was, what he was, and how it was going to be you know, his vision for how things
1: got done. That's amazing. Now, I know from what the the other members of Sabbath have said, of that iteration of Sabbath, that he came in and he was musically trained, which really helped them because Ozzy had not been. He was able to take part in the arrangements of the songs. Obviously, his vocal skills were unearthly. I mean, that's the thing he's remembered for coming at this from an outside point of view you might if you are uninformed sort of think of ronnie as this kind of laughable guy who slew the dragon as part of the dio shows you know and did all this kind of cliche heavy metal stuff this hard edge you're talking about was it an authority was it a no one fucks with me kind of thing or both of those
2: and more yeah, yeah. now i am not a tall person you know by any stretch of the imagination but I was a little bit taller than Ronnie. Mm. And I hate to resort to that cliche of small man syndrome because mm. I think that would be far too easy and wouldn't really explain what was going on with Ronnie. But he certainly wanted you to know he was in the room. He was a huge personality. Not in an obnoxious way. Sometimes, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, in those days, I was working with Thin Lizzy, who mm. were good times all the time, mm. you know. I worked with Journey, who were a bit uptight, but mm. at the same time, you know, they liked to... Chill out in the mm. usual Californian weed and wine way. Yeah. Ronnie was, you know, I remember taking him, I got him on the cover of Record Mirror magazine. And mm-hmm. for those that are way, way too young to recall, Record Mirror in the early eighties was one of the four principal music weekly magazines.
1: The other three being Sounds, Melody yeah. Maker, and The Great Enemy.
2: Yep. But Record Mirror was the only one with a colour cover. Right. And Record Mirror was a pop magazine. Mm, And the fact mm. that we'd got Black Sabbath on the cover in colour was considered, you know, quite a coup. Yeah. And I remember going backstage at the Hammersmith Odeon and carrying, you know, a dozen of these on my arm, you know, like war medals, and handing them out. And Ronnie sat down, he got his reading glasses on, he sat down, he read every single word, because it was his picture on the cover, it was his interview. Yeah. And at the end of it, he was like, Have you read this? Have you fucking read this i was like yeah yeah it's it's great he went great great mm-hmm. see here and he shows me like one line where it didn't say ronnie james Dio is an egomaniac <laughs> it said something like you know with the maniacal ego of a rock star or you know something like something that, like go, that yeah, yeah this asshole says i'm an ego fucking maniac <laughs> what are you gonna do about this bloody hell i'm like you're on the cover i mean what wh- what are we supposed to do i mean mm-hmm. and also i think you're micro reading this did he take that kind of positive criticism well no i mean i had to leave the dressing room shame-faced you Good. know i mean he was deeply serious that particular heaven and hell tour where i went across europe with them, yeah. I was on the road in britain they were the first band to take me to america yeah I was over there staying at the Waldorf Astoria. Mm, mm. You've got uh, Elizabeth Taylor in the next suite and <laughs> Mick Jagger down the hall and He'd be the premier in nowadays. We wouldn't even get it'd be a FaceTime.
1: <laughs> FaceTime <laughs> with Black Sabbath. Now he was quite good at turning on the charm with the journalists, I think. He if, was, as I recall, he was brilliant yeah, at yeah.
2: turning on the charm with everybody. So that sort of nasty side I don't think Ronnie would have seen it that way. He, he saw that as taking care of business. Being assertive. He's yeah. a New Yorker. Yeah. Where only the ugly survive, yeah. you know, and, and you have to kick <laughs> some serious ass to yeah. get anywhere. And let's face it, he'd come from a tough world. I mean, he grew up as a lounge singer. Yeah, was it Ronnie and the Red Caps? Well, they came a little bit that further was, down the road. road. Yeah, yeah, yeah he yeah. was, originally, he was literally a tux, bow tie, fly me to the moon. Huh. Ronald
1: Padovono, did I dream that?
2: Yeah. That is right. Yeah. You tell, I've my research. In fact, he told me once that he got the name Dio from a local mobster. Yeah, it means God in Italian. Yeah, I know, I love that. Ronnie I mean, James God. You know,
1: why not go the whole way? Well, you know, well, I, you know <laughs> if you're
2: going to call anybody God and you like your rock and metal, yeah, then right. he's the man. He is absolutely the man. And And in fairness, you know, he gifted Black Sabbath... Some would say the greatest. I would say one of the greatest albums of yeah. their entire career. Of course. It was an absolute brilliant piece of work. Mm. But it was fueled by Ronnie's utter determination to establish his reputation yeah. forever. Because he'd done Rainbow and had achieved quite a bit of recognition for that. He was in Rainbow uh, he'd started out in Elf who supported Deep Purple yeah. and then when Richie Blackmore left Deep Purple to form Rainbow he invited Ronnie and a couple of the other guys from Elf to Jim, come in. Jimmy Bain, or was that someone else? Not Jimmy Bean. <laughs> yeah. and as Ronnie told me at least 400 times it was always meant to be Richie Blackmore and Ronnie James Dio's Rainbow, yeah, which of course is a is a mouthful. Yes, you may as well say Richie Blackmore and someone you've never heard of's Rainbow. Mm. You know, so you can see the why that didn't pan out. But, you can. but Ronnie held that against him. But then, in fairness to Ronnie, I mean, he helped Richie Blackmore and Rainbow become a huge international act. I mean, when Gillen left Deep Purple, he didn't go on to become a huge international... None of them did, apart from Ritchie Blackmore. And he was utterly aided and abetted in that by Ronnie James Dio. But because Ronnie felt he didn't get the credit he deserved, this absolutely echoed throughout Ronnie's career to the point where when Ritchie fires him from Rainbow because he wants to go in a much more commercial direction which he did with Graham Bonnet. Yep. He didn't want to sing about rainbows and dragons anymore. He wanted to sing about I love you, you yeah. love me. Yep. Yeah. What a big number one record it's going to be. Mm. Um, that rhymes, by the way. It, what you it, just mean, said. it was meant to. <laughs> See, unlike your stuff that Wait, gets I written down the pirate. night before and he's just <laughs> bloody rotten, you know. I, so I knew you are a poet, of course. I'd forgotten you. Were a poet. Okay, good, yeah. He gets fired. And Rainbow goes on to even greater success. I mean, this hurt, hurt a man who was very, very proud Mm. and was evenly balanced with a chip on both shoulders at this point. He joins Sabbath. He almost single-handedly rescues him because let's not forget that last Sabbath album with Ozzy, Never Say Die. Was one of the worst records ever released yeah, yeah. in the history of worst <laughs> records. You know.
1: um, the last gasp of the Aussie lineup.
2: Absolutely. And I think he just wanted to make sure that this time he got it right. It gnawed at him that he was following in Aussie's footsteps because yeah. it's still going to be, oh, well, he's just hitching a ride. He hitched a ride with Black Moys, hitching a ride with Black Sabbath mm-hmm. to the point where, this is something I really did want to mention. Yeah. Um, On that first trip to Paris, Ronnie said to me out of the blue one afternoon, he said, listen, I've been working on something. I want to show you. And he held up what we now consider to be the devil horn
1: salute with both hands. Mick is holding them up as we speak. I'm holding them up as we speak. For
2: those watching this in black and white. Why he came up with that, he explained to me, he said, because when Ozzy used to come out on stage, Um, he used to flash a peace sign. He put up two hands. In fact, you can find zillions of pictures of Ozzy in Sabbath in the 70s. Bit like Nixon on the White House lawn, you know, yeah. Holding
1: up the two, or like Ringo Starders all the time. Absolutely, yeah. except with two hands. Right, got it. Yeah, this goes to two hands. The full Aussies. See, not... Ringo's only <laughs> one hand job. <laughs> uh, you know, this is two hands. What you're saying is this is a double hand job. This is a
2: double hand job of peace, <laughs> and love. So, Ronnie says to me, "What do you think?" It's kind of like you know. Oh, he ran it
1: past you. Like, you yes. Know, should I do this? Because I'm
2: the I mean? PR, right? Should I have pictures done like this? Should I do it on stage? God. And it was in, that contrived. In fairness, he could have gone like that. Double, do he's doing rude rude fingers at I'm me. doing yeah, yeah. is that index finger? Um, no. Middle that's finger. Your middle that's finger, that's a, finger yeah. I'm doing two middle <clears throat> fingers now. <clears throat> that's two middle fingers. He could have done that and I'd have said, "Yeah, whatever," <clears throat> you know. <clears throat> but
1: he did this and I thought, "Oh, that's intriguing." If you'd said, "No, that's a crap idea," Ronnie, do you think he wouldn't have done it? He wouldn't have listened to a word I ah, said. because what I was angling for was you saying, yes, he would have said no, therefore establishing you, Mick, as the guy who basically authorised and pioneered the horns in metal. Let's rewind that. Yeah. If I'd said to Ronnie... Yeah absolutely no way
2: he'd have gone Mick you're the expert thank God for letting me know you're the expert (laughs) you've just saved my career I could have
1: looked ridiculous when I went on stage (laughs) well this is the truth listeners you hear about it here for the very first time Mick Wall is the man who authorised Ronnie James (laughs) Dio's pioneering use of the corner as I believe it's uh, known in old Italian the dual horns Uh, which I believe come from some sort of uh, warding off evil thing from ancient witchcraft. But Mm -hmm. here's the thing.
2: He didn't mention any of that to me at the time. And being of Italian descent, I mean, it may well have been in his thinking. But at that moment, and we spent a good half an hour. He he, he walked around the hotel room. Again, I'm doing the devil horn thing with both hands. Uh, You do that really well, Mick. He walked around the room showing me what he would do. And uh, he obviously clearly figured it all out. And I just thought, yeah, that's genius. It's like... I'm in the tradition, but I am my own man. Yeah. He didn't mention anything about warding off the devil, or I certainly didn't call it the devil
1: horn salute. Bill, Bill warding off the devil.
2: Yeah, he just said, this is my version of Aussie's peace sign. That's amazing. And yeah. so
1: history was established. And so it was established. Oh, my God. All right, so Ronnie was very heavy metal. We know this. Uh, we're jumping forward a little bit. We'll come back to Sabbath. But after Sabbath, when he went on to do Dio, and as of, you know, resuming this cliche, he slew a dragon on stage. And to me, that was when heavy metal got really silly, you know, I mean, for fuck's sake, you know, pixies and trolls and dragons, you know, this is when people laughed at you for liking metal. That's my view. Does that resonate well, with you at all? I hear what you're saying, Yeah, but I mean, I went to some of those
2: shows and yeah. we couldn't wait for the dragon. You know, we loved it. No, well, okay, it was theatre. Yes. So it was a bit of pantomime. But he'd get the sword out and duel the dragon. And the dragon, this is the 80s, not now, where you've got a virtual reality (laughs) dragon from
1: Game of Thrones. A hologram, which we'll talk about later.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. this was more like, you know, something out of, he's behind you. (laughs) Two guys in a pantomime horse with a dragon's head. But listen, here's where that came from, okay? And Metallica did it.
1: Yeah. Everybody the, um, had their go at it. Yeah, OK. Yeah, yeah.
2: Here's where it came from. Iron Maiden's Eddie. Ah, uh, OK. Mm. That's where mm. the impetus came from because Maiden, they didn't have this huge vision, but they came up with this idea which turned out to be visionary, Yeah. which was instead of always having a picture of them on the cover of their albums, they would have this Eddie the Ed, yeah. which was just a very cheap mask on the stage which blew smoke originally, but by the mid-'80s had turned into this 12-foot... Right pantomime mummy yeah, yeah. that would come out at the climax of their show, And everyone loved it. Everyone loved it. it mm. Seriously took it to another level. And, mm. of course, you didn't think, oh, my God, it's a robotic futuristic <laughs> mummy.
1: You went, hey, it's hey Eddie. It's Eddie. <laughs> you went, let's have another five pints. But the point is everyone was laughing at this, just as they would have laughed at the dragon. I'm sure you did look forward to it, but essentially you thought it was silly, didn't you? It was Denzel the dragon. That was his name. Denzel.
2: <laughs> Did you not know that? (laughs) Yeah, Denzel the Get with it, man. I know. I need to to catch up with 1985. You need to get on YouTube right now. (laughs) Type in DO slash Denzel. That's beautiful. Okay. Well, Eddie the Ed, Denzel Denzel, the Dragon. Sorry, now I see the link. (laughs) Right. Okay. No, Denzel, let me tell you something, was brilliant. I mean, in fairness, I can't recall exactly whether us lot at Kerrang came up with the idea of Denzel the Dragon or Ronnie did. Yes. But in those days, there was such an overlap. The the minute we might have written something like that in the magazine, ergo, everybody called it that. Got it, got Including it. Ronnie. That was the power of Kerrang! back then, of course. Absolutely, and also Ronnie James Deer was extremely shrewd and astute guy. I mean, yeah,
1: yeah.
2: <clears throat> what are you doing, snorting I'm coke? Just, I'm just coughing away from the mic. Yeah, I will say that, yeah. <coughs> um, yeah, stay off it. Drop. Denzel the Dragons, eh? Stay <laughs> off this stuff, for fuck's <laughs> sake, when we're doing these. Here's when it got silly. Yeah. The following tour... When he had the spider. Ah. Did you never see the spider? Mm, No, no. I think I tuned out
1: at that point. That's terrible, really, isn't it?
2: Arnie the Arachnid.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's not what it was called. You've retrospectively called it Arnie. I I may have done that, yes. But it was
2: a giant spider. Yeah, which he similarly dispatched. He certainly did. Of course did. he did. going no to <laughs> <one he> <laughs> A mere gigantic spider from the future, tis but a scratch compared to the great Dio. Good Lord. Yeah, at that point, I must say, we did kind of think he's jumped the shark, right. you might say. He's sped right over the spider there. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> there you go. It's silly, isn't it? Metal got silly at this point. But metal's know. allowed to did. be silly, isn't it?
0: Dead Rock Stars. Carpe diem, baby. I hadn't
2: seen him for a few years, and the first time I hooked up with him again when he was in Dio... It was like meeting a long-lost brother. He was so kind and, you know, in great I mean,
1: this was real. This was real friendship, you think? Absolutely. Yeah. Gave me his phone number and told me to come to the house and... Uh... Well, you've got to tell me about the house. The house. Hmm. OK. Well, let me just... butt in one second, because I recall when you did your Monsters of Rock TV show, Yeah. there is it's either an entire programme or possibly just a few scenes where you're playing snooker with him at his mansion, essentially, aren't you? Yes. Do tell. Well, those are just a few scenes. In fact, we did a whole
2: programme which in America came out on the world's first video magazine. Jesus. Hard and heavy. Hard and heavy. Hard and heavy. Hard and the heavy. world's first. <laughs> Hard <laughs> and heavy. With your host, Mel. Hard and heavy. Hard and
1: <laughs> heavy. Snooker with funny. Did you beat
2: him at snooker? No, of course not. I mean... <sighs> If Denzel the dragon is not going to be able to defeat the great Dio, the <laughs> Nick, mighty Dio...
1: the wall isn't going to happen. I'm not
2: going to beat him at <laughs> snooker. Was it snooker or was it pool? You, mate, you're the one who did it, I don't know. <sighs> who knows? It like a pretty I, big table. I, I was in his enchanted castle. I can't remember what happened. <laughs> we went to his house to film. Which was what, in LA? I might be horribly wrong here, but it was up in the hills somewhere. Him and Stevie Nicks had not adjoining castles, but they had it <laughs> in the same vicinity... <laughs> They did. They did. Was it literally decked out like a castle? Ronnie's was, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. It was really, honestly, you, you came in, and here is this incredibly welcoming guy, okay, welcoming you to his castle. Yeah. Okay. And you've got the kind of normal rock star stuff where in his big kind of living room there's a bar, you know, a fully stocked bar. Of with the. It's, it's
1: de rigueur. It's yeah. de
2: rigueur, except yeah. it's a British bar. Like a pub. It's a pub because Ronnie loved real ale and he loved Indian food and they were the two things that were rarer than hen's teeth yeah. in Los Angeles. Yeah. So he had his own with the pumps and the optics, you know, Amazing. Ronnie's.
1: yeah.
2: Fantastic. But then he took you through the rest of the place and literally, when I say castle, castle slash kind of church, there was stained glass everywhere... <laughs> There was, at a one point, a lectern with a, a like a 15th century Bible yes, on mate. it.
1: Brilliant. must have been a
2: suit of armour around somewhere. There was, but let me finish about the The lectern the, right. lectern. the lectern's got a 15th century Bible open on it at a certain page. There's a candle next to it, which is permanently lit. No. And then we go into a, another room, and, and here's the suit of armour, proper suit of armour. Again, behind it, the stained glass and the arched windows. And
1: Was this all quite impressive, or was it deeply tacky? Or was it both? Well,
2: deeply tacky I wouldn't have gone that far because I mean I'd, I'd been in LA for a couple of years at that point and trust me you have to go a lot further to go to deeply tacky in LA by,
1: by that point I think your sense of what was tacky was gone Did, beyond most people's I think at that to, point. to be
2: honest <laughs> by LA standards this was positively magisterial this was operatic in its classiness
1: and he uh, took all this seriously, right? I mean, he didn't sort of laugh and say, "I know it's a bit silly, but you know." No, the no, he was, no, he
2: explained. Uh, he was this, well into it, this Bible is from the you know the 14th century or whatever it was. He mm-hmm. um, said
1: 15th minute ago. Can
2: you be yeah. consistent? These things. This story Joel, has gone on a while. It might have been, <laughs> dated centuries. <laughs> anyway, go on. We can make fun, but at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. This was his oeuvre, you know, this was his... Milieu. This, his milieu, this is where he drew inspiration. Mm. And so when he was writing about neon knights yes. and, you know, so many of the kind of mythological yes. subjects, because he used to sit there reading this stuff, he, used mm. to, he was completely steeped in it. It's wonderful in a way, isn't it? It is, and I think it's interesting when you then look at, say, what Richie Blackmore did later in his career when he went into the whole medieval... Yeah, of course which, of course, everybody laughed at him for. Mm. And there are many aspects of that that are hilarious to the yeah. untrained eye. Yeah. But at the same time, Richie really does know his medieval music and his instruments. And... and he
1: sells out castles in Germany, so he's got the last laugh.
2: He does. And he does a nice line in me Jerkins. I beg your pardon? Jerkins. I think he was doing a lot of that way before the medieval <laughs> phase,
1: but I appreciate your point. <laughs> No, I'm, so, I'm so sorry about the 18 uh, plus nature of this podcast listeners no you're not i'm trying to restrain my my comrade here no you're not so um would you say you knew him well were you friends i don't know that's a big question isn't it is it isn't it yeah. i mean uh, in did the he mu- confide in you you know about his fears insecurities ambitions i wouldn't go that
2: far yeah. i worked for ronnie again in the mid 90s mm. as his pr
1: well that's interesting because that was a bit of a dodgy period back then wasn't it Angry of, Machines and all that bollocks, or was that a bit later?
2: Well, I, no, no, that was about that time. But yeah. I, see, I, I liked those records. I mm. thought Angry Machines was a, a really strong musical statement by someone who could have easily just recycled the past. I think he was urgently trying to get in touch with... The same generation of metal fans that you know you are so
1: familiar with Joel mm, in terms mm-hmm. of you know those bands that came along like Tool yeah or, or... all the nineties lot when yeah. became a bit more self aware, but that was never going to work surely I mean people weren't going to weren't going to warm to Ronnie who wore you know blue hair and rode skateboards to school in nine ninety eight mm. well I don't think he rode any skateboards in no, fairness. I, mean... <laughs> I think he'd be more probably
2: riding a, a dark mare through the midnight dawn of like tomorrow that. you know a
1: dark mare.
0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Dead Rock Stars with Mick Wall and Joel McIver. To circle back
2: to the whole Rainbow thing and, and Ronnie's determination to establish himself, after Sabbath... Which again, he felt really done down by. He'd mm. done two tremendous albums, worked on a great live album and essentially got the boot or more or less painted himself into a corner where he had no choice but to leave. Well, Can you clarify? Because there are conflicting stories about this. Did he leave? Was he pushed? You know, when a marriage ends, you know, is it the first one that begins an affair or was well, that, the marriage already dead from the next That's up a very years? good way
1: of fudging the actual truth. Well, but- no. The
2: actual truth is, is that Black Sabbath belonged to Tony Iommi, mm. Geezer Butler, and Ronnie felt that he'd taken ownership because of Heaven and Hell and Mob Rules, yeah.
1: great albums, and brought them back from. He from really had oblivion, really. Yeah,
2: he brought them back from oblivion. He brought them into the eighties. There are still people I know today mm. who are maybe ten years younger than me, mm. who for them Sabbath begins and ends with Heaven and Hell. Yeah, I mean they
1: look at the Aussie albums and they they're meh. I totally see that point of view. You know, you might think the first three or four Aussie albums are amazing, then after that, tails Off, and then it bounces back incredibly with Ronnie. I I see that point of view. By the time Ronnie then forms Dio, Mm. this man who'd
2: fought so hard for Black Sabbath and Before That Rainbow to be slightly more democratically run, now exerts a grip of iron, you know. I mean, he co-wrote with Vivian Campbell and Jimmy Bain, Mm. but, you know, the clue was in the name. You know, that band was called Dio... And it was Dio's band. It was Ronnie James Dio's Dio. To the point where, by the late 80s, (laughs) and this was odd because no one could understand why he did this because, like I say, the clues in the name, when they'd already had like three multi-platinum albums, he suddenly announces, uh, his people suddenly announce, you know, the guards at the gate come down with the, the scrolls. And in future, the band is to be known as Dio, featuring Ronnie James Dio. It's so weird, isn't it? Well, at that point, it's almost Trumpian in the respect of thinking, why would he do that? Yeah,
1: yeah. Is he so far gone that this seems to make sense to him? No, he wasn't an overindulger in, in the substances, as I recall. He, he wouldn't have gone mental because of that, I assume. Ronnie
2: wasn't into cocaine or no. anything like that. He, so he, did, he have... did
1: like a puff. Okay, but he wouldn't have gone like Glenn Hughes and just lost control completely. Oh, God, no.
2: No, no, if anything, Ronnie was the opposite end of the spectrum. He was Mr. Control. Yeah, okay. Completely in control. And it's almost as if, you know, this was another expression of that increasing desire to be completely in control because any control freak will finally break down and admit to you if you you push them enough. They're very insecure. Yeah. Yeah. And although he had this incredible talent and he'd built this incredible career... I think there was always this underlying feeling of, you know, he he has to keep the plates spinning. He can't let anything go by the by.
1: See, it's interesting because he did collaborate with people all the time, all his career. Later, as we'll come to, he formed Heaven and Hell. I suspect that in the 90s there was a movement by a lawyer or two, and this is only a suspicion, everyone, all right? Don't sue me. That... You were proven to own a band if you put an album out which had your name on it, right? So look at Black Sabbath. You've got Black Sabbath featuring Tony Iommi on that record, which was it, the Seventh Star? Is that that one? Another it, one?
2: It was essentially an Iommi solo album, which, in fairness, I think Don Arden, who'd become involved again, decided would sell more copies if it was marketed as a Black yeah,
1: Sabbath album. I mean, album. mad as a box of frogs. You know, and then Ronnie did this thing. Maybe there's some legal nuance that you and I are aware of and couldn't possibly comment on, even if we did. Anyway, well, I was going to leap forward a little bit and talk about Heaven and Her when he came back right. uh, and formed Sabbath because Ozzy was either not willing or unavailable to form Sabbath with Tony and Giza. Well, I can throw some light on that. Please, would you? Pl- That's why I employ you, mate. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they came back together as Black Sabbath. Uh. That's what they did. And the reason Ozzy wasn't involved is because Ozzy wasn't involved. You can't have Ronnie and Ozzy in the band. And as Ozzy always used to joke, after he left, Black Sabbath became Geezer and the Three Italians, because after Bill Ward bailed out, uh, he was replaced by Vinnie Apicci. Mm-hmm. So you've got Ronnie Dio, Vinnie Apicci, Tony, Tony Ayo. Ayo, Ayo Tony Iommi. Hey Tony, <laughs> meet Ronnie. He's the boss. <laughs> And the idea was to get back the heaven and hell era Mm -hmm. of the band. Mm -hmm. At that point, Black Sabbath was a slightly moribund concept. Mm Ozzy still had a huge solo career. Mm -hmm. But what had happened, which nobody knew, was that back in the mid-90s, and Sharon Osbourne told me this herself, Mm -hmm. there had been an occasion, which we won't go into, but Mm -hmm. there had been an occasion where Sharon had the opportunity, shall we say... To take over the ownership of the name Black Sabbath. Yes. Tony Iommi actually gave that over to her. Mm. And so, although she owns the name, you know, Ozzy and Sabbath had done this farewell thing in L.A. in like 90... Yeah, something like that. And although they'd made occasional reappearances at Ozfest and things like that, essentially it looked like nothing more would come of it. There certainly wouldn't be an album or anything like that. yeah. OK, the enterprising record company people come to IOMI, whose own career at this point is totally hit the skids. Mm. He brought a solo album out, had mm. loads of guest stars, contemporary stars and you know, a bloke from Pantera. Yeah. I thought a very good album. Yeah, it was. And it didn't sell doodly squat. Oh, isn't it? Well, um, Ozzy was on that
1: too, wasn't he, on a track.
2: Anybody yeah. you can see, Henry Rollins, they were all there.
1: Skin from Skunk
2: So Geezer's career is moribund. Yeah. Bill's away with the fairies. <laughs> yeah. And Iomi principally is the one struggling for something to do. Yeah. And Ronnie. So when the offer comes in, look, well, how about you reform Black Sabbath, the Dio Yeah. Era. So that's Ronnie, Tony, Geezer, and Vinnie Apici. Yeah. Because Vinnie Apici had gone on to be Ronnie's drummer in Dio. Yes. They got a very nice contract to make an album and tour as Black Sabbath. I mean,
1: it was a good idea, wasn't it? It was the a great idea, idea. It was sound. It was yeah. a great idea.
2: Yeah. I mean, they'd also reconvened in like 92. They did one album in 92. Yeah. With Ronnie. Dehumanizer. Exactly. Mm. But that was the height of grunge in the mid-noughties to late-noughties. We're now in the classic rock era. People are starting to talk about Sabbath, aren't they? You know, as this shit-hot band, which of course they had been. So there they are, fairly set to go. Yeah. And suddenly. Sharon Osbourne or representatives thereof Mm, mm, mm. make it clear that under no circumstances would they be uh, given permission to tour as Black Sabbath or to make an album under that
1: name. Mm, mm.
2: Hence the idea to call the line-up Heaven and Hell. Mm. It snookered them because obviously if they had been Black Sabbath, that would have generated a great deal more interest. But the fact is, we all knew who we were talking about. Yeah. And they played those songs and they did them really, really well. And the new album was good. Better the Devil the, You Know. Great. That Bible Black was a great track. Oh, yeah.
1: And, you know, yeah. that was a really, really good album. It's a really dark album, actually. It's very, very metal. That in, was a, in a credible, in a uh, really a credible modern way. metal way. Yeah, there was nothing nostalgic about it. It was fucking great. I loved it.
2: And it was better than anything Ozzy had done for about 10 years I as think well. so. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what happened there.
1: Yeah, okay. And then they toured, of course, and... Coined it in, I assume, because they played these massive venues with Megadeth and Machine Head and all these bands and support. I thought that was an amazing career move. And actually, that was the last time I saw Ronnie play. I saw him play here in London. Yeah. And he was really on it. He was really on form. Did you get to talk to him in that latter part of his career? I did. Mm.
2: I did. I just wanted to add, before I mention this, when I did Ronnie's PR in the mid-'90s, we touched on that earlier, the whole grunge phenomenon yeah. was mega. New metal was around the corner. Yeah. And Ronnie came to London to do press... And I couldn't get him a single interview with any of the music papers. Not one. Fucking snob. Not even Kerrang. Mm. Not even Kerrang, which arguably Dio had helped build, you know, from its inception in the 80s. He was one of those, you know, one of the drivers of your cover. You'd put him on the cover and you'd sell more copies. How did he take
1: this sort of snobbish...
2: Well, I was was really worried because Mm -hmm. he'd come to London. You know, Mm. we had three days of press set aside no press mental isn't it? i managed to get a fanzine writer and another friend from the metal press i don't even remember what he was doing the interview for but he came mm. and interviewed him and i just had to be really frank with ronnie and say look i'm really really sorry i have really tried and by then ronnie had known me for nearly 20 years yeah. he, he knew i'd try yeah but we were both kind of off the radar at that moment yeah And he was really nice about it. That's amazing. I'm glad to hear that. He he was really nice about it. We had a laugh. Then we went out and had an Indian meal and drank lots of ale. And uh, I'm sure, it, you know, for a proud man, it would have really hurt
1: him. But he He, dealt with it like a gentleman. And he took the high road. So I'm I'm so glad to hear that because I have a little bit of an emotional connection with Ronnie. Even though I only ever interviewed him once, I had half an hour with him. I pointed out to him in the interview I was doing Mm -hmm that the very first LP I was bought in my life when I was three years old was the Butterfly Ball, Roger Glover's side project, which Ronnie warbles on lavishly, doesn't he? And um, I told him that and Ronnie said, that's great kid. Right, he called me kid. And he was probably, I don't know, 55, and I was probably 30 or something at the time, or 25. But at that moment, I wanted him to be my dad, you know what I mean? (laughs) And uh, so I I had grown up listening to his pipes on those weird songs, frankly, which are neither for children nor for adults. So I'm glad when you say, Mick, that a down period in his career, he was gracious enough to to sort of take the flack. And I think that the victory was ultimately his, because people look back on him now as this god, don't they? You know, with unearthly skills, incredible... Driving force, really, and all sorts of stuff. You can look back on the dragon slaying and the angry machines and all that, and it's not funny, it's not stupid, it's great, because we look back on it so fondly. And he wound up his career, albeit way earlier than anybody would have wanted, with a great album and a great band. And I I just think that in the world we move in, which is imperfect and full of complete wankers and failures... This was a person who triumphed. That's how I see it. And I know that's sort of unashamedly cheesy, but that's how I see it when I think of old Ronnie. I agree with you
2: completely. I think, you know, nobody gets anywhere without luck. You've got Mm. to have a big scoop of luck. Yeah. At the same time... Say that in a New Jersey kind of way. uh, You
1: need a big
2: scoop of luck. You need a scoop of luck. I I don't know what that was, (laughs) but it wasn't New Jersey. Edit that out. Big scoop of luck. A big, rather a large scoop of luck. Yeah, yeah. Or as we say in New Jersey...
1: (laughs) A big scoop of luck. You Your go. mook.
2: Yeah, that'll do. Right. That's terrible. That was no, terrible. So totally anyway, um, you need a s you need you need a fair measure of luck. Yeah. But more than that, you need fortitude, you need courage, you need balls. Talent. You need talent, but talent gets you in the room. Mm, mm. That's all it does. Mm. You know, after that, it's every man for himself. Some of the most talented musicians I've met in my life never sold a record. Mm. Some of the most brilliantly successful rock stars I've worked with. You know, have this much talent as yes. they say on Spinal Tap. I mean, they're really not very talented. <laughs> yeah. They just do one thing rather well yeah. and they look good. Yeah. They look like rock stars. Yeah. They did videos, sold millions. Ronnie transformed Richie Blackmore's career yeah. after Deep Purple. Richie, of course, you know, one of the world's greatest guitarists.
1: A force onto his own. Uh,
2: arguably would have gone on to do something significant anyway. But yeah. the fact is, Ronnie is who took him to that next place. Yeah. Black Sabbath, Ronnie rescued their career. Yeah. No mean feat. Twice, then, arguably, you know, with heaven and hell. Absolutely. Mm, and mm, then went on to his own career, mm. which was even more spectacularly successful in the 80s than Black Sabbath. So here's a guy who didn't just do it once, didn't just do it twice. He did it at least three times. And then in the 90s, I mean, there were stories when I was looking after Ronnie's PR in the mid-90s where he was doing venues so small in America that the changing room was the toilet. <laughs> I know. But in a way, I think that brings humility sometimes. It does. It does, and humanity. And yeah, the last sort of 15 years of his life, whenever I spoke to him, he demonstrated that in spades. I yeah. mean, he was very, very, very self-aware. He understood when people made fun or did stuff like that. I think all the great rock stars do. You know, mm-hmm. Lemmy knew people made fun of him behind mm-hmm. his back.
1: Mm-hmm. Nobody likes it, but they grow past it, you know. Yeah, if you've got the uh, emotional sort of girth to deal with it and appreciate it and accept it, that's a big thing. And a rare thing, maybe.
2: Absolutely. And Mm, and by the end mm, of his mm. life, uh, when I spoke to him, certainly, he was a great guy to talk to. Brilliant company.
1: Well, we traditionally end these uh, podcasts with a mark out of five stars, do we not, for various criteria which we apply to our subject. Uh, The first one is taste for excess. And I think, as we've said, Ronnie (laughs) Ronnie was not an excessive man, particularly, was he? You like to, no, to puff on In, in, in on terms of
2: drugs, you mean?
1: Well, I think we mean generally. Oh, I, think, mean I, think we, I think we mean extroversion, don't we? Really? I mean, it, he li- I tell you what, Ronnie
2: liked to puff, but he liked his ale. He liked his Indian food. Well, the three
1: things do go rather well together. He care, was, I'm he told.
2: Was, yeah, he was pretty wholesome, in fact, in that respect.
1: One star out of five, then. Okay, all right. His influence? Well, no. And let me just butt in here. Glenn Hughes, who I always mention all the time, told me that he, that he used to have an argument with Ronnie on a regular basis about who, who had the greatest voice, right? This is true. Ronnie used to say, you're the best, Glenn, you're the best. Glenn used to say, no, 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 Ronnie, you're the best. And, and in the end, they reached an agreement, which I love, which is that Ronnie was the voice of metal. <laughs> Glenneth was the voice of rock. <laughs> now, it's meaningless because they've both done both things. But, you know, you can imagine these two getting together, you know, having a couple of pints and going, yeah! Do you know what? And I love Glenn. I mean, Glenn's a freak of nature. He's the man.
2: His voice is still as good today as it was in Deep Purple in the 70s. Yeah. However, when you talk about influence, I think Ronnie definitely has the edge because wonderful as Glenn is, apart from his time in Deep Purple... Mm. His career has taken so many strange and unexpected turns, and it has. And he's hooked up with so many. I, I was just in LA recently, and somebody was playing me tapes of Glenn uh, working with John Sykes, huh. Glenn working with all kinds of people. And each of these tapes was amazing, yeah, yeah. but nothing really ever came of yeah, it.
1: Yeah,
2: I think Ronnie, you have to say, had a career that spanned four decades. And I'll tell you a quick story. When Ronnie came in once and we were struggling to get impressed, we were also looking after Ugly Kid Joe. Oh, yeah. Who at that point were hotter than a pistol. Mm-hmm. And Ronnie was in the office and one of the guys from Ugly Kid Joe came in. And I sort of went, oh, this is right. he went, Ronnie Dio! And he fell <laughs> to his knees and he's like, you rule! Dio rules! You rule! And he just did the whole we're not
1: worthy thing. Mm-hmm. And I thought,
2: he's taking the pit. No. No, for real. No, for real. Mm-hmm.
1: Ronnie Dio Ruled. Do you know, we were talking about The Enemy earlier. Just, or you, know, you were. I, I mentioned The Enemy. Yeah. The only thing I ever wrote for The Enemy was a short piece interviewing the drummer of a band. I can't even fucking remember the name. Some band that young people like, right? Beatles? <laughs> no, it was some, you know. Stones? Some sort of guitar-y youths. And one of them was banging on about Ronnie James Dio, and that was why and the enemy asked me to do it because I was the metal expo who, right. could, who could translate this into a way that enemy readers would understand. I have a fairly strong feeling that my article is the only time that Ronnie James Dio was mentioned in the enemy for and about twenty five and that's years, why and they, they went down and that's the what shitter. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they paid him. a bit more attention to Dio <laughs> and
2: less to the, <laughs> the fucking Morris. Morrissey. That's
1: it. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. Let's talk about death as a career move, which our producer always puts on. I think is a very cynical thing to say, but you know, that's it's not that he didn't die like, young. He, he wasn't Kurt Cobain, was he? He died uh, in his later years of a tragic disease that was unavoidable. He's not at the 27 Club. It's not really even relevant, is it?
2: No. I mean, it really isn't. Edit that out. Yeah. His legacy. Well, the Dio legacy continues to reverberate. I mean, it's, you know... Mm -hmm. It's there, obviously, in Black Sabbath. It's there in Rainbow. It's yep. there with his own work. It's there in Heaven and Hell.
1: Oh, and the Devil Horns, of course, that you you pioneered yourself.
2: The Devil Horns, which uh, which I didn't pioneer, <laughs> Ronnie, but Ronnie did, and it really grieves me when you see these people like Gene Simmons trying to claim ownership. No, Gene, Unusual. I was in the room when Unusual. Ronnie Unusual came move. up with that one, and I tell you what, I was there the first night on tour when he did it, mm-hmm. and. Like that, the whole audience did it back, oh, I love and I idea. was completely yeah. awestruck because yeah. I thought he's going to do this, and some people are going to go, well, "What's
1: he doing?" And no, they immediately did it back. Oh, I'm so glad to. And hear. I thought, "This yeah. guy's a genius." What a moment! What man's, a moment!
2: Man's a genius.
1: Fantastic, uh, Mick. What are your views on uh, uh, Ronnie James Dio reappearing in front of audiences as we speak in the form of hologram? Well, of course, you hear this and you go, oh, for God's sake, that's just wrong on every level.
2: But I I saw a clip on YouTube. (laughs) It was fantastic. I mean, it was very entertaining. And we live in an age where these things are not beyond the pale. This is actually where we now live. And you look at Elvis with the Philharmonic Orchestra. They're talking about doing a Michael Jackson tour. And uh, Prince has been mentioned. Absolutely. And if you go and see these tribute bands, the best ones of which can be extremely entertaining absolutely. and fun to see. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'd rather see the Australian Pink Floyd than the real Pink mm. Floyd at this point. Mm. Mm. The idea of actually seeing Ronnie James Dio in his heyday <laughs> with that voice and, of course, throwing those horns, although he wouldn't have put it that way. No. With a live band, I don't rule that out at all. I mean, that Mm. to me is a night out. I could see you and me, Joel, going to that to pay fealty to the mighty Dio and the fact that
1: he will always live on forever. And the question is, that brings everyone down, is would he have minded? Would he have been bothered, if he'd known? Oh, that's
2: a good question. I don't think so. I think Ronnie lived for the greater glory of Ronnie and uh, and his titanic music. I mean, in fairness, his music is timeless. Yeah, There aren't any Lindrums on his 80s stuff. No. And yeah. the only time he tried to plug slightly more into the musical zeitgeist, yeah. as it were, the rock zeitgeist, was in the 90s. Yeah. But then everybody was. Iron Maiden tried to. No, Def Leppard tried to. Mm-hmm. Even Led Zeppelin cut their hair when punk came along. Yeah. But apart from that, I mean, he stayed true to himself and yeah. he knew exactly who he was and what he wanted to do yeah. and he was utterly shameless and and awesome about the whole thing.
1: I have no problem with it myself. You know, if a great artist like that can be translated into digital form and therefore be immortal in the banks of a server somewhere i have no problem with it you know you, you know perfectly well you're not being sold the real thing you know what you're going to see you can't complain about it. you don't have to go and see it yeah i'm all for it myself and i feel sorry for those who didn't see the great man in the flesh but at least there's a simulacrum of it available
2: yeah yeah and maybe they could do one of the dragon denzel yeah <laughs> why not a vr
1: Denzel? easier than remaking the thing yeah there you go well that's pretty much uh, all we're going to say about the great Ronnie James Dio today. Well, although, frankly, we could sit here and talk for many more hours about him, couldn't we? We could. I'm so glad you knew him well, Mick. I feel very privileged that I got to have a brief moment with him because, as I said earlier, you know, quite an emotional connection for me. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate you tuning in to hearing us talk about these things. Do get in touch with us via the Facebook page or the Twitter feed or wherever you heard this from. And I'd like to trailer episode number three, Mick, if you don't yes, mind. Yes, yes. Uh, without giving away who the subject might or might not be. Our producer uh, at 7 Digital, by the way, huge thanks to 7 Digital. Wonderful people, fragrant people who produce the show. Are we going to name our producer? Um, yeah, his name's Ian Callahan. Yeah, and he's the most beautiful guy. He's great. I'm looking at him now.
2: I'd like to thank he's you. He's come up
1: with this great thing. He says, now, this is the link to the next chat we're going to be talking about in episode three. Yeah. Now, Dio said, we rock. <laughs> <laughs> our next subject was a little bit more verbose because he added the words, will and you. To the words, we rock. And I'm sure people, you can figure that one out for yourself. Now on that bombshell, I would like to say thank you so much, everyone. And it's a big goodbye from Mick. Goodbye. And it's a big goodbye from me. Goodbye. If you enjoyed this, then please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share it on social media.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods,